History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 258th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On today's episode, we're going to go to a state we have not done yet, and that is Alaska. So put on your winter jackets because we're going someplace cold and you know how I feel about the cold. But I have actually been to Alaska twice in my life. I've done two Alaskan cruises and I have been to the location we're going to be talking about today on one of those cruises. And that is the city of Skagway, Alaska. It's a great city. The cruise ship comes right into it. You are right in the heart of the downtown historic district. And it's really cool when you're walking through the town and you look back and you see this huge cruise ship that you just came in on looming over the city. It's a really neat effect. The city is very much like it was in its heyday when the Klondike Gold Rush swept the town and caused it to grow. And it definitely is a great tourist destination. And there are a few hauntings going on in this city, particularly because a lot of these buildings have been here for over a hundred years. So we're going to talk about Haunted Skagway on this episode. Before we get into that, we have a few people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Tony with an I, Kelsey, Brandon, Rose, and Michaelia. And I hope I said that right. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Apennine Colossus is found near a pond at Villa di Protolino in Florence, Italy, and seems to be emerging from the mountainous rockwork. The Villa di Protolino was a Renaissance villa built by the Grand Duke of Tuscany for his Venetian mistress, Bianca Capello. The villa was mostly demolished in 1820, and what is left is part of Villa Dimidoff. The sculpture, known as Apennino, is like a half-man, half-mountain, squatting over a snake from which water flows, with his head bent as though he is looking down at the snake. His left hand rests upon it. Apennino was created by Flemish sculptor Giambologna in 1579, he created works in the Mannerist style, which exaggerates balance and proportion. While the work is amazing in and of itself, what really makes it wondrously unique is that it has several hidden caves inside. These caves are decorated with frescoes, and a small marble statue of Venerina is inside one of the caves. One of the really bizarre features was reputedly a space in his head that had a fireplace which, when lit, would blow smoke out of his nostrils. And that certainly is odd. not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, this month in history.
In the month of May, on the 29th in 1919, the pop-up toaster received its patent. Humans have been eating bread for over 6,000 years, and for most of that time, bread has been toasted to preserve it and to make it tastier. Before the electric toaster was invented, people used fire to toast bread. Charles P. Streit was a master mechanic in a plant in Stillwater, Minnesota, and he was becoming increasingly frustrated with the burnt toast that was served in the company cafeteria. The cafeteria staffing was not adequate enough to keep a continuous eye on the toast, so Streit decided to invent a toaster that did not need supervision. He incorporated springs and a variable timer into his design, and this created the first pop-up toaster. He figured that the device would only be sold to the restaurant trade, but as we all know, nearly every home has a pop-up toaster today. Alaska is a popular destination for cruise ships hosting Alaskan cruises, and it's one of the settings for Jack London's Call of the Wild, which I absolutely love. Skagway does have a wild history due to its location during the Klondike Gold Rush. The Red Onion Saloon not only provided a place for prospectors to get a drink, it also was a high-class brothel. Today, the saloon is a restaurant and bar that serves up more than just food and drinks. It serves up some haunting experiences. The Golden North Hotel dates back to the Gold Rush as well and plays host to two apparitions. There are buildings for fraternal organizations and government and a couple of houses that also play host to spirits. Join me as I share the history and hauntings of Skagway, Alaska. All right, so saddle up your mules, put on your snowshoes, wrap yourself up in something warm because we're going hiking through these mountains. And there's a lot of snow here. The word Skagway is the nickname of Kanagoo. Kanagoo was the mythical woman who transformed herself into stone at Skagway Bay. She is the cause of the strong winds on the bay. The people who lived here originally were the Tlingit people, and they named a mountain now known today as Face Mountain, a name that translates to Kanagoo's image. And if you Google Face Mountain, you'll see that it does look as though the profile of someone is looking up from the top of the mountain. So you can see why the Inuit people here would have given it that kind of name. The Tlingit were hunters and fishermen. The tribe still exists today, but much of their heritage was lost when Russian missionaries brought Russian Orthodoxy to the area. The indigenous people lost their faith in their own medicine men and ways when smallpox devastated them, and that's why they were more open to embracing these Russian Orthodox missionaries that came here. And if you are an executive producer of the show, we kind of had a little bit of a theme going this week because the Stones and Bones number 9 featured an Alaskan graveyard that had a connection to these Russian Orthodox missionaries. Very few white men came into the rugged area. A former steamboat captain named William Billy Moore conducted surveys over the Coast Mountains because he believed he would find gold through there. 
Similar passes in South America and British Columbia had revealed that they had gold, so his belief was backed up by some facts. He said, hey, if they can find gold there, I bet I can find gold here. He went on to claim an area of land measuring about 160 acres, and he bought this with his son Ben in 1887. And they chose an area that was at the mouth of the Skagway River. So he picked a perfect location. After staking their claim here, they built a sawmill, wharf, and log cabin. Billy just knew that the prospectors were going to be flocking to this area, and he was going to be prepared for that. And I don't think you could prepare much better. You're at the mouth of a river. You've built a wharf, so you're ready for ships to come in for trade and bringing in prospectors. You've built a sawmill so that you are ready to build some buildings and homes. And then you have your own house there as well. Billy only had to wait about 10 years before the Klondike Gold Rush started. In 1896, gold was found in the Klondike region of Canada's Yukon Territory. Soon, Skagway was flooding with prospectors. This would be the entryway into a 500-mile journey to the gold fields in Canada. This would seem like a dream for Billy as the population swelled to 30,000. So in a year, they would have 30,000 people come through there. But his lot was jumped and his land was stolen. So all of his dreams of making it big with all of these prospectors didn't work out because there were just so many people he couldn't protect what he had. The official resident count was marked at 10,000, and this made Skagway the largest city in Alaska at the time. Skagway grew into a modern city with fine hotels, electric lights, waterworks, a telephone system, street grading, a city hall, jail, and residential districts. The city's government stepped in to regulate gambling and saloons. One of those saloons still stands today, the Red Onion Saloon. And for those of you who have visited Skagway, particularly on a cruise, it's pretty much the first building you see on the left-hand side of the street, if I recall correctly. I really loved the outside of it. It just looked like a fun place to go into. The Red Onion opened for business in 1898 when the Klondike Gold Rush was at its height. The building was constructed from planks cut by Billy Moore. As was the case with so many drinking establishments of this time, the main form of entertainment hosted at the saloon was the bordello. And this was not just any bordello. The Red Onion was the most exclusive bordello in town, so not every guy could just come in here. They were very picky about what miners could come in there. You better have your pockets stuffed with cash. Alcohol was served on the first floor, with the brothel being up on the second floor. Business only ran for two years as the gold rush waned and prospectors moved on to other areas. But boy, during those two years, the Red Onion was one hot place. After it was shut down, it served a number of other purposes. During World War II, the building was used as a U.S. Army barracks to board soldiers. It later served as a union hall, a laundry, bakery, television station, and gift shop. The building was bought by Jan Rentmore in 1980, and she turned it into a restaurant and bar that hosts a museum dedicated to the prostitution past. And so if you're in town, you could stop there to get something to eat, and they will take you on a tour through the museum. And the ladies there that are your tour guides dress up like they are ladies of the evening, ready to tell you their story. The hallway is very narrow up there. The rooms are very small. So you can see that this was kind of a crib-like setup, like we've heard about so many other bordellos of that time. There's more than just a bordello museum hosted here, though. The saloon is reputedly haunted and has such a reputation that many paranormal investigators have come to visit and investigate, and the location was featured on the TV show Alaska Haunting in October of 2015. There's more than one ghost haunting the building, they believe. Investigators have reported picking up EVP. Guests and employees have felt cold spots and seen apparitions. 
glasses have moved around on the bar. Disembodied footsteps are heard up on the second floor. When people go to see who's wandering around up there, they find nobody. Several times, though, they would, quote-unquote, find something else, and that would be the scent of perfume. One time, the police were called because the disturbance upstairs was so loud. The police showed up, and as they approached the stairs, they claimed they saw what was a shadow figure running down the hall and into a room that had belonged to the former madam. But they found no one in the room. A musician who played in the saloon once lived on the second floor, and one night he awoke to see a shimmering light in his room, and he felt a very strange sensation. It truly terrified him. One of the local town leaders was upstairs once and claimed to feel a strong presence that felt very hostile. One of the most well-known spirits in the Red Onion Saloon is that of a former prostitute named Lydia, and some people say that she might have been a former madam even. Lydia likes to water the plants, apparently. When the owner goes around to water the plants, she sometimes finds the soil to be wet. There are no plants in the madam's room, and yet an apparition has been seen walking around as if it is watering plants. And that's what causes them to think that Lydia might have been a madam, because if she is in the madam's room wandering around, supposedly watering plants that aren't there, probably was her room at one time, and she's doing something residual. No one knows why Lydia is here, because there are no records of a Lydia dying in the bordello. But she's hostile towards men, so maybe something did happen to her here at the hands of one of her clients, perhaps. One employee said, I've worked here 13 years and can tell you that there is something here. We've had employees see her, have witnessed things flying off the back bar, have customers see her, all sorts of events. It's definitely more active in spring and when the building is quiet, or at least we notice it then. Another business that opened in Skagway was the Golden North Hotel. The Golden North Hotel was built at the height of the Klondike Gold Rush in 1898, just like the saloon. It is three stories, painted white, and has a gold-painted cupola. The hotel closed in 2002 to guess. The building is currently occupied by frontier excursions and adventures. In its heyday, around a 1,000 prospectors would pass through the doors every week. One of those prospectors was named Klondike Ike, and he arrived in Skagway with his fiancée, Mary. The couple rented room 23 at the hotel. Ike left Mary there to make his fortune in the gold fields. And Mary waited for him, and waited for him, and waited for him. But she eventually died while Ike was away. Some say she'd been ill with pneumonia. Others say she grew depressed waiting for Ike and starved herself. And still others say she died of a broken heart. She was found dead wearing the wedding dress she had bought for her future nuptials. Mary's spirit is believed to still be in the building to this day. She's been nicknamed Scary Mary by those that have experienced her. Guests who stay in room 23 have occasionally woken up because they were feeling as though they were being choked. Their lungs feel tight, almost as though they were sick with pneumonia. Other guests have reported seeing the apparition of a woman roaming the halls or watching out a window. The owner and one of the maids were together when they saw Mary standing by the window in room 23, which backs up the fact that they actually saw something there. Blasts of cold air are felt as though something very cold has walked by and mysterious noises have been heard. Mary also seems to have made an appearance in a photograph when a singer from Juno had his girlfriend take his picture while standing in the then-empty third-floor hall. After the picture was developed, they saw that a woman was standing next to him who was clearly not there when the picture was taken. There may be another ghost here as well that reputedly haunts room 14. Mysterious light has been seen by both guests and staff in that room. It has a sparkle quality to it and others claim that it is a twinkling orb. No one knows exactly why it would be in this room, but it moves around and seems to be non-threatening. Some hotel guests have felt really sick when staying in room 14. It gets so bad that some have nearly passed out. 
They claim to see a grayish light manifest at the same time that they are feeling ill. As it fades away, they start to feel better. Some ghost hunters claim that they found a dark ring around the tub the morning following their overnight stay in that room. It was as though someone had taken a bath during the night, but none of them had, and they were sure that the tub was clean when they checked in. So who had been in that tub in the middle of the night? The Eagles fraternity first met in Skagway in 1899. They moved into the Eagles Hall in 1916. The hall was formed by bringing together two old hotels that were built in the 1890s. The Mondaman Hotel was moved here in 1916 and the Pacific Hotel was added to the rear in 1920. The building is two stories and painted maroon with white trim. During the summers, the hall hosts a popular show called Days of 98 Show. This is Alaska's longest-running theater production and dates back to 1927. The show was originally started as a fundraiser for the hockey club and is a variety show. And it's got the can-can dancers and everything. The second floor seems to be host to several friendly ghosts. They manifest as cold spots, and people have seen apparitions walking throughout the second floor. The Mulva Hill House was built in 1904 for W.H. Case, who was a partner in the well-known photographic firm of Case and Draper. The house is named for a man who lived in it from 1914 to 1949, White Pass and Yukon Railroad dispatcher Mul Mulva Hill. And that White Pass and Yukon Railroad really brought a lot of people into the city. The house is Victorian in style, as are most of the houses that were built during the gold rush. He died in 1949, but his spirit is still in the house. He had a telegraph there since he worked as a dispatcher, and he reputedly taps out messages on a phantom telegraph. So people hear the noise of the telegraph, but there is no telegraph in the house. So what could be making the telegraph noise? What I would think would be fascinating is if there was somebody out there who could read the telegraph tapping and figure out what was being said. I would love to know. Hello from the other side. Wouldn't that be cool? His spirit also opens and closes doors and walks throughout the home, stopping around in what sounds like heavy work boots. So that would be just slightly unnerving. Today, the Mulville Hill House is a private residence. So you can't tour it or anything. You can look at it from the outside if you like. And I'm not sure if the current owners have experienced the haunting activity or not. Haven't heard any reports from them. The city municipal building was built in 1899. This was the first territorial court in Alaska. But today it serves as Skagway City Hall and Department of Tourism. There's a museum on the second floor. And there are reports of strange noises coming from that floor. And the source has never been discovered. So they're not sure if they have a spirit that's wandering around or if maybe some of the artifacts that they have in the museum might be attached to something. The White House is a building on the edge of town that is fire damaged and abandoned. It was originally built to be a private home, but during World War II, it became a hospital. Later, the house was used as a small hotel, then a daycare center, and then a home for families once again. People who've stayed or lived in the house have reported supernatural activity. A commercial fisherman was staying there with his family, and he and his wife awoke one night to see the apparition of a woman standing at the foot of their bed. They also experienced their toddler daughter chatting away with someone they could not see in the kitchen. They occasionally saw this apparition in the kitchen later, and she matched the description of a woman who used to run the daycare center. So I'm assuming that the woman they saw at the foot of their bed was the same one. And I don't know if this woman died in the home. I'm going to assume that she lived at the daycare center and that she did die there. And that's why she's still there today. 
Now, there is a building that I absolutely loved when I was in Skagway, took several pictures of it, and just stood and looked at it for a long time, just surveying the outside of it because it is so unique. I was not able to find any hauntings that are going on at this location. It would be the perfect place to have them just because the outside of it's so unique. But it is one of the coolest buildings in the city, and that is the Arctic Brotherhood Hall. It is said that this is the most photographed building in Alaska. The building was constructed in 1899 as headquarters for Arctic Brotherhood Camp Skagway No. 1. The facade is made up of more than 8,800 pieces of driftwood collected from local tidal flats. And the sticks have been shaped into a mosaic of letters, a gold pan. There's square patterns. They go up and down in rows, cut to the same size. It's inlaid. It's just very cool because it does look like a mosaic, only it's not tile. It's these wood scraps. And it's just very cool. I encourage you to Google it and look at it. The Trail of 98 Museum is inside and features native artifacts and relics of the gold rush, including gambling paraphernalia from the old Board of Trade Saloon. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. You guys know how I like my rabbit holes, so thanks for joining me down here. I wanted to tell you a little bit about Soapy Smith. I first heard of Soapy Smith in Colorado. Doing research for this episode, I read that Soapy had ended up in Skagway, and it is here that he died and was buried near the city cemetery. He was quite the character, and I thought you would enjoy hearing about this infamous con man if you haven't already. Soapy had been born into a rich plantation family in 1860, but as was the case for so many Southern families, the Civil War changed their fortunes. His family relocated to Texas, and it was here that he began his career as a bunco artist. And for those of you who don't know what that is, basically a con man. He gathered together some other rogues to help him out with his scams. They used the typical shell games, three-card Monty, and other little cons to swindle people out of hundreds of dollars. Soon, Soapy was known as the king of the frontier con men. He moved on to bigger games and created his prize package soap cell. And what this was is he would go out onto a busy street corner. He'd set up a suitcase on a stand. And inside the suitcase were piles of ordinary soap wrapped in plain paper. He'd make a big production of showing people that he had some soap. He would wrap money around it. One dollar, five dollars, all the way up to a hundred. Then he would rewrap the bar in plain paper, put it back in his little suitcase there, and then he would tell the people, I'm selling the soap for a dollar to five dollars per bar. He would place a shill out in the crowd who would say, oh, I want a bar of soap. I'll buy one. And then he would unwrap it. And sure enough, he'd find a hundred dollar bill. So this gets everybody on the street corner very excited. They all want to buy some soap. So all these people are handing him a dollar, five dollars to get these bars of soap. And of course, you know, they would unwrap them, and almost every time, all they would find is this five-cent bar of soap. And he did this for two decades, and that's where he got his nickname, Soapy, from. In Denver, he added stock exchange swindles to his repertoire. He had such a large group of men running his cons that he claimed to be the boss of Denver's underworld crime empire. And he really could make good on that claim. People felt like he ran the city. And he would do this thing where he would take care of all of the bad guys, like help them get out of jail, give them jobs and things like that. But then he also did a lot of charitable stuff for the police and other charitable groups. So everybody really kind of liked him. He opened the Tivoli Saloon and Gambling Hall in Denver. And a little fun fact is that Bat Masterson worked as a dealer at the Tivoli for a time. 
Soapy joined forces with Old Man Taylor, a guy who was a con man up in Leadville, and the two operated a successful shell game upon the many unsuspecting miners there. People in Denver were trying to shut down gambling, and so Soapy took his operation to Creed, Colorado, which is another mining town in the mountains. He opened a club where he displayed a petrified man for the price of 10 cents. So come on in, everybody. See this oddity I've got in my club. It's a petrified man. He called this petrified man McGinty. And as you probably already know, it was a hoax, too. It was actually nothing more than cement over skeletal remains. But people thought, hey, this is great. That oddity brought in lots of customers. And then, of course, you know, the club ran crooked card games and swindled many of the gamblers who came in there. Soapy returned to Denver and eventually became a wanted man. And so he moved further west until the Yukon Gold Rush grabbed his attention in 1897. He made his way to Skagway. He soon claimed to be the boss of Skagway. He opened a saloon called Jeff Smith's Parlor and ran his cons out of there. Pretty soon, the people of Skagway were tired of Soapy and his ways. They knew what he was up to. So a vigilante group tried to force Soapy and his gang out, but he claimed to have a bigger force of 300 men, so the vigilante group backed down. But they weren't going to give up. They would return in 1898, and they held a meeting to discuss what they were going to do with Soapy. He showed up with a Winchester rifle over his shoulder. He argued with a guard at the door, and a gunfight erupted. When the smoke cleared, both Soapy and the guard lay dead. Soapy's last words were reportedly, My God, don't shoot. Soapy Smith was buried just outside the city cemetery. His grave and his saloon, which has since been moved from its original location, can still be seen in Skagway to this day. Thanks for joining me in the rabbit hole, guys. The city of Skagway looks much like it did over 100 years ago with wooden boardwalks and buildings dating back to the late 1800s. Several of these buildings seem to be housing an energy left over from the past. Is Skagway one of the most haunted cities in Alaska, as some people have claimed? And are these buildings haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, if you have not made a trip up to Alaska, I encourage you to do it. It is so gorgeous to visit, and Skagway is a really cool city. And I encourage you to definitely walk around, check out the shops they have there, have something to eat at the Red Onion Saloon. Those are just some of the things that we did while we were there and just really enjoyed the place. would also encourage you to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I am working to get some more of our events up on the website so you guys can keep track of everything that I'm doing Got a lot of things coming up here in the summer, and we just planned a trip to Charleston, South Carolina, the first weekend in June, the first and the second in June, because the Old City Jail in Charleston is going to be closing to tours and is going to be remodeled on the inside into an office building, so it will be forever changed. So this is the last chance to get into what I think is probably one of the most haunted buildings in that city, and we are going to be doing that on the second, Saturday night. 
Friday night, we're going to do a tour with Pleasing Terrors with Mike Brown. So looking forward to uh, getting to do that tour a second time with Mike. So if you are interested in doing that, we do have the event up in Facebook. I'll get it up on the website with the times so that you can get onto the tours that we're doing. And you'll want to do that pretty soon as it's coming up here pretty soon. And that is here in 2018. It was really cool. Whitney had posted in the Spooktacular crew since Mother's Day was this past weekend. She said, Happy Mother's Day to all the spooky moms. Name one creepy thing you've seen your child do or share a memory of a creepy event with your child. What was their first ghost tour like? Have they ever seen a scary movie? Have they ever had a ghostly encounter? And I thought I'd share some of the answers that she got. Christy said, my daughter is notorious for just standing right at the side of my bed and staring at me until I wake up. If she wants something in the middle of the night, scares me to death every single time. Kelly said, my six-year-old gives funerals to the snakes he finds dead in the yard. He piles rocks around them and some flowers and then says a few respectful words. Crystal said, a couple of days ago, my almost four-year-old took the heads off all of her Barbie dolls and used them as finger puppets. (laughs) I love it. Suzanne said, okay, this isn't my son, but my golden retriever. She wakes up at or around 3 a.m. every night to go outside. Abby said, my son constantly thinks about me dying. I don't know if it's because he loves me so much that he's afraid of it or what, but it's really disconcerting. I can imagine that would be a little disconcerting. Whitney said, my seven-year-old son is a brave kid, but I remember when he was a baby, I heard him chattering away in the middle of the night. When I checked on him, he was awake and happy, sitting up in his crib, looking at the chair beside him. There was no one there. He was nine months old at the time. Who was sitting there, Whitney? Amber said, my son and I shared a ghost experience. The night after we put our cat down, we'd had her for 17 years. My son and I were in different parts of the house. I heard meowing, and of course, it didn't register at first. We'd been hearing meowing for 17 years. Then it sunk in that she was dead. We had no cat. From the other room, my son said, uh, mom, did you hear that? Yes. Yes, I did. For both of us, it sounded like it was right next to us, but we were on different floors of the house. Hello, ghost kitty. Ooh, that's kind of a cool experience, though. I love those. Deborah said, we lived in a house that is benignly haunted. My daughter always rolled her eyes when my mother mentioned it. After we moved into the house, she chose her room upstairs. But after six months, she moved to a first floor bedroom, but would never say why. I think we all know why. I don't think it was a little drafty up there. Karen wrote, my kids have seen a lot of crazy stuff. A shelf that tipped forward and dropped all the ceramic things they made in class was one of the creepiest. The four older ones saw it. That had them creeped out and upset because it broke most of the art. Now, that's not cool. You just don't break kids' art. Come on, what kind of ghost does that? Joy wrote, My kid had an imaginary friend named Bobby who was always in the corner cooking droney, his word for macaroni. I'd always suspected that apartment was haunted based on things that would go on. Bobby stayed at the apartment when we moved. So thank you to everybody for sharing those. I thought those were really cool. And now I have a review to share from Apple Podcasts. This comes in from Mindham Earl, lovely host, lovely show, five stars. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but I love it. I have been binging episodes ever since I found it on Apple Podcasts last week. Diana Denise are so sweet and honestly remind me of talking to my mom or aunts about history and hauntings. Well, glad you found us and are enjoying it. I want to thank you all for joining me for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard, Nancy Doy. She's going to be getting a marble headstone. And you know, Grave Digger, we should probably tell everybody that you have a name now. Coilette over on Twitter suggested that we give the Grave Digger a name, and I love the name that she suggested, Mort. Because as we all know, that means death in certain languages. So Mort, say hi to everybody. Hi. I'm Mort. Mort likes cemeteries. 
All right, big guy, get back to work. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.